one of my many responsibilities as a parent to two school-age children is to pay attention to the weather because the weather can change drastically in a short time here in Alabama. Recently, there was a week when we sent our boys to school in warm clothes and puffy jackets. Then the very next week, we were dressing them in shorts and t-shirts. A few days later, it was back to long sleeves and raincoats. We monitor the weather for changes in temperature and wind direction and precipitation because we can't bear the thought of one of our boys being ill-prepared because of our inattention or carelessness. I tell you that not because I want to portray myself as a gold standard parent. I can assure you I have many shortcomings in that area. But I'm using what is called an analogy from lesser to greater. This is a teaching tool that Jesus used on occasion. For example, in Matthew 7, he asks a rhetorical question. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? The implied answer, of course, is that no reasonable parent would give a stone or a snake to their child who asked for something to eat. Jesus then makes this point. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So let me connect the dots from Matthew 7 to my amateur meteorology. If I, though I am an imperfect father, give proper clothes to my children, how much more will our Heavenly Father give proper clothing to His children? Of course, I'm not talking about literal clothes. I mean spiritual clothing. This is what Paul calls the armor of God. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 6, verses 10 and 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Paul then goes on to explain what that armor is, including some specific pieces of it. We're going to look at those over the next few weeks, but today I simply want us to consider more broadly the nature and necessity of this armor. Now we have to start with something that may or may not seem obvious to you, but it absolutely needs to be said. When Paul speaks of putting on the whole armor of God, he is speaking figuratively. This is not literal armor, and the battle for which he calls us to be prepared is not a literal fight. In fact, he even says in verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. There's a story from ancient Greece about a soldier named Shabrius. Before going into battle, he told his fellow soldiers, Since we are about to fight, let us not in any event think that we are engaging the enemy's gods, but men who have blood and flesh and who have shared the same nature we do. It was a way of encouraging his fellow soldiers that the battle was winnable. We're not going up against enemies who are stronger than us, he was saying. We're engaging in a fight with fellow men who have blood and flesh just as we do and are just as susceptible to death as we are. What Paul is saying here in Ephesians 6 is precisely the opposite of that. Our fight, he says, is not against flesh and blood. This is not a battle between one human and another or between one nation and another. It is a spiritual battle between the church on the one hand and the spiritual forces of darkness on the other hand. That's why Christians sometimes refer to this as 
spiritual warfare. Paul goes on in verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, Paul has used the phrase rulers and authorities earlier in this letter not to describe human rulers and authorities, but to describe the evil spiritual forces over which Christ Jesus has already been seated in victory. They have been defeated, yet they continue to wage war against God's people. Why do they wage war against God's people? Well, Paul, throughout his letter to the Ephesians, describes some lofty ideas about the church. He says in chapter 2, verse 10, that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He says that the church is like a new humanity in which both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians are united to God and united to one another in Christ. Through Him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, Paul says. And together we are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. This diverse but unified people is being built together in Christ into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church, Paul tells us, is supposed to be a people who put away falsehood and speak the truth to one another. A people who work hard in order to have something to share with anyone in need. A people who use their words to build one another up rather than engaging in corroding gossip. A people who are kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave them. The church is supposed to be a people who are filled with the Spirit of God, who sing and make melody to the Lord, who give thanks to God the Father, and who submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The church is supposed to be filled with healthy families, husbands and wives who love and honor one another, children who obey their parents in the Lord, and parents who bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But of course, anyone who has ever been a part of any church for any amount of time, or anyone who just knows enough about history knows that churches are not always like this, are they? Christians are not always like this. So at the end of his letter to the Ephesians, after Paul has given all of these lofty ideals, he brings us down to earth, so to speak. He reminds us how difficult this task will be and how necessary it is that we stand in the strength of the Lord and put on the whole armor of God. The reason it is so necessary is precisely because we are not battling against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil. Our opponents in this war are not one another. Unlike Shabrias, who reminded his fellow soldiers that their enemies were no more than men who have blood and flesh, Paul reminds us that the enemies we're facing, they are not like us. They are far more powerful than we are, and they are evil and cunning. They know our weakness, and they are highly skilled at temptation in all its forms. This battle is not winnable if we fight in our own strength. We will surely be defeated If we rely on our own defenses, without the armor of God, we will be completely unable to prevail. And if we want to be the people God calls us to be, this armor is absolutely necessary. 
So this battle is not winnable in our own strength, but it is absolutely winnable if we stand in the strength of the Lord and put on the whole armor of God. Our enemies may be far more powerful and far more cunning than we are, but they are nothing compared to our God in whose armor we are called to be clothed. His strength and His wisdom are infinitely greater than theirs, and He is on our side, not theirs. He equips us for the battle. He empowers us with the same strength He used when He raised Christ Jesus from the dead. All three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they are all engaged with us in this fight. So we need to have a realistic appraisal of our enemy. But there is no need, absolutely no need, for us to fear him. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils, meaning Satan and other evil spiritual beings. He said, one is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or magician with the same delight. Now, let me try to flesh that out a bit more. There are a few errors that we need to avoid when we think about the armor of God and about spiritual warfare. First, we need to be careful not to underestimate the enemy. Satan would love for us to underestimate him. He would be delighted if we never thought about him or if we thought so little of him that we did not take his schemes seriously. But Paul warns us not to make this mistake. He says in verse 11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The word schemes it's a word that would be used of a military general coming up with battlefield strategies. Satan, Paul tells us, is a master tactician, and we underestimate him to our own peril. The second error we need to avoid is we need to be careful not to overestimate the enemy. We certainly don't need to underestimate him, but we also don't need to give him too much credit. Satan is smart. He is powerful. He has many centuries of experience in the field of human temptation and manipulation on individual and structural levels. But he is not equal with God, either in terms of wisdom or strength or any other quality. He is a created being who had a finite beginning and will have a finite end and who has a finite existence all in between. The third error we need to avoid is we need to be careful not to misunderstand the armor or the battle. C.S. Lewis said that some people develop an excessive and unhealthy interest in evil spiritual beings. And there are some today who consciously or unconsciously think of the armor of God and of spiritual warfare as if it were an almost magical thing. They think to themselves, if only I could memorize the right things to say at the right time. Or if only I could put a field of spiritual protection around myself to guard me from the attacks of the enemy. It can all start to sound a bit like Harry Potter learning spells and counterspells at Hogwarts. But there's nothing magical or mechanical about the armor of God or spiritual warfare. 
It is simply a way of describing the whole life of the Christian until we die or Jesus returns. It's a struggle. It's a wrestling match. It's a war. Sometimes we experience joyful victories, other times painful defeats. But it is a sign of spiritual life that we struggle and fight rather than laying down and being run over. So what then does it mean to put on the whole armor of God? Paul is fond of using this kind of language, putting on certain qualities and putting off others. In this case, however, the things we're putting on do not belong to us. They belong to God. It is His armor that we are called to put on. The truth that we are called to gird around our waist is His truth. The righteousness that makes up the breastplate of righteousness, it is His righteousness. The faith that shields us from the darts of the enemy is faith in Him. We do nothing to achieve or earn this armor. We cannot go out and purchase it with enough money or good deeds. It is something He graciously gives to His children. As we will see in the weeks to come, this is the very armor that Jesus Himself wore, figuratively speaking, when He came to win victory over sin and death and hell. This is the armor in which the Holy Spirit clothes the people of God. But you and I must put it on. God provides it by His grace. He strengthens us with His might. But we must allow ourselves to be strengthened in Him. And we must receive the armor He provides. So the preparation for our battle starts when we acknowledge our own weakness. When we admit that we are completely incapable to engage in this fight with our own equipment and our own strength. Yes, we have to wrestle, we have to struggle, we have to stand firm, but we do so in full dependence on Him. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Henderson Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit us on Facebook or check out our website, hendersonbaptist.org.